0: The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. I am going to read the first six uh, six or so verses of our passage, and then we'll read the rest as we work through this. And We're going to ask for God's help. We're going to start looking at this together. Genesis 39, so just in the background of the story, Joseph, two chapters ago, was sold into slavery Um, By his brothers who falsely told their dad that he was murdered because they didn't like him anymore. And now as Joseph is in Egypt in slavery, we pick up with him. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian. Had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph And he became a successful man, and he was in the house, uh, as he was in the house of his uh, Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him, that is Joseph, overseer of his house, and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's House for Joseph's sake, and the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in his house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge because of him. He had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Father, as we look at this passage and look at the story of Joseph and how you were with him, um, we get into a tricky passage that potentially gets close to home for many of us in our private lives about things that we don't like to talk about or that we regret happening, or we wish we had never experienced in our public life or in our personal life. God, we we tread into a passage that is fraught with a lot of challenging dynamics. And yet, in the midst of this, we find you writing the story. So I pray that as we work through this passage, that we would lean on you. We would know your presence with us, and we would experience your steadfast love. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, Some of you may be aware when we did our, uh, uh, we had Rachel Denhwander here six months or so ago. I can't, who knows? Six months sounds right. Um, What that began for us as a church is uh, a growing relationship with the YWCA because we had them in here in case anybody was struggling with the uh, topic and the conversation about Rachel's experience of uh, confronting injustice. And assault and so um, as we had her here and we had that relationship developed with the YWCA I've been invited over there several times to continue to kind of develop our relationship with them be involved with things talk about whatever one of the funny things about their job is that their their headline is empowering women eliminating racism and it's just funny to hear them all talk about how um, their job is to stand in the middle of some of the most awkward <laughs> and contentious issues of our day Right, when you talk about empowering women, that certainly gets into a lot of uh, cultural discussion um, around gender and sexuality, all that stuff. And then eliminating racism is no less fraught with a lot of awkward conversations depending on where you are with the political discussion, um, contentious debates and all that stuff. But uh, they seem to derive a lot of joy, not like malicious joy, but just joy from engaging in the category of caring for people and helping us helping them find a path forward. What we do here this morning is that we are kind of like our friends at the YWCA. We are stepping into the middle of a passage that on the the surface level seems to be about one thing. I'm not sure how you've heard this passage taught in the past. But as we begin to unpack it, we realize that we are in uh, a realm of what we call power and abuse dynamics. Um, And I'm front-loading that statement because I think that we'll see that as we move through the passage. This passage, ultimately helps us to begin to engage these uncomfortable categories, whether because we've experienced them or because they're awkward, of injustice. we'll just say injustice in a broad category. So we're just gonna step right in. And as you have questions, if you have questions, you can text them and we can talk about this. And I'm sure this missional community discussion this week will be lively, to say the least. But what we're trying to do here is we're not trying to give the all-encompassing biblical answer on these categories. This is a story that I think lends, whether, however you want to frame this, the Bible speaks to the realities of our lives. And this is injustice, small or big, is a category that each of us experience one way or the other. And I think that it gives credibility to the Bible that while this story is, we'll guess, what, four, 5,000 years old? it still maps onto our experience today of what injustice is like, because frankly, in four or 5,000 years, people really have not changed that much, um, if at all. As we engage this category, it's a moment to pause and reflect on how we engage the category that many of us, whether publicly or silently or privately, we've experienced. So here's kind of the big idea for the passage is we're gonna walk through with Joseph, and then we're gonna begin to kind of pick it off in kind of four big chunks. This passage in the midst of engaging in justice calls us to lean on God's presence with us through the pain of injustice. Now, your, your injustice or what you've experienced with it may not map onto this passage entirely, but I think this sets us a template for understanding what's going on when we experience injustice, and it ultimately calls us to lean on God who's with us through that. Are you guys cool? We're gonna jump in. Verse one to six, now when I say 6a, That just means that there's a period in the middle of the verse and so it's just the first half of the verse that's that's all that that's the bible you know technical stuff so as we get into this the blessing of living with integrity leaning on god's presence in the midst of experiencing injustice the question begin arises just in engaging with that question what does it mean to actually walk with god in a way that isn't fraught with the pain of injustice well joseph shows us that you know As we live with God, really the the point of living with God is not that we're like inviting all of this bad stuff into our lives. Ultimately it happens one way or the other, but we're just looking at Joseph's life here. Now Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. He was in the house of Egyptian ma- of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. For the time uh, that he had made him from the time that he had made him overseer in his house over all that he had the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the lord was on all that he had in house the lord was on all that he had in house and field so he left all that he had in joseph's charge because of him he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate now at the beginning of this passage where it's emphasizing over and over again That not only was joseph brought to egypt which shouldn't have happened because his brothers sold him in the slavery, but joseph is a slave so immediately out of the gate we're not confronting something where it's just kind of like well joseph had a job and joseph's job was you know he was a plumber he liked doing plumbing work and he went he moved to egypt and was a plumber in egypt god blessed his work immediately out of the gate we're confronted with the injustice the indignity that joseph was bought and sold as human chattel to somebody to be taken to egypt And to be worked under conditions that he didn't want. And yet, even in that situation, Joseph, in this story, has the wherewithal and the presence of mind to say, I am still going to do my best. I'm still going to be who I am in this job that I didn't want. There's frankly no indication up to this point that Joseph had ever actually been entrusted with management of somebody else's estate. He was the youngest baby brother of a family who had older brothers who managed the sheep in the field and all that stuff. And yet somehow, over the course of 11 years, that's what we get from other passages about this, he invested his time and skill and energy to being good at what he was not wanting to be doing, but still involved in doing, and doing a good job at it. Now, the the application of this passage is not to say, Whether you're self-employed or you work for somebody, you're ultimately their slave and that, you know, you need to work so that God makes you the the best sort of slave you could possibly be or that God's going to make you the manager or the general owner or whatever. The point is that in situations that were not ideal, Joseph still lived in a way where he was like, I just, I want to be faithful to do my job to please the Lord. I think we don't get a lot of internal narrative for Joseph or what his heart was thinking. But it seems to be that over and over again, Joseph chose to be a blessing to those around him, and they noticed that, rather than kind of giving into the cynical hopelessness of I'm a slave, what does it matter, my brothers have forgotten me, my family's sold me out, nobody's going to remember me, that sort of negative line. He chooses to do that because he knows that the Lord is with him. We see that over and over again in the passage. And just one final comment, because I'm not sure there's a lot more to explore here. But I think it's interesting there at the end of verse 6. So he left, so this is Potiphar, all he had in Joseph's charge. And because of Joseph, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. So who, who's kind of in view with, what's that, what is that about? The food that he ate is just basically saying, like, all of Potiphar's personal life, he didn't have to, that was all that Potiphar had to worry about. In terms of his business life, basically, he owns this whole organization, and his business manager is Joseph. Potiphar's personal life, his marriage, the food that he literally buys and puts in his mouth, all that stuff, like, that's Potiphar's business. He takes care of that. So that's just kind of to to kind of fill in the gaps of what that phrase means because it's going to matter for what we're looking at next. Guys, them. we're cool? All right, just trying to <laughs> gauge where everybody's at, all right? Um, I can do juggling act if you want to kind of keep us all focused and moving on. Are we good? Okay. Uh, the, next, we're going to kind of pick up into, we go from J- Joseph just living his life, doing the best he can with the circumstances he's got, and now we get into the kind of the meat of the passage, the dehumanizing effect of injustice. Verse 6b and that's the second half of verse six to verse ten. Let me read this for us, and then we'll kind of circle in and start to make some comments about what we're seeing here. Now, Joseph was a handsome, was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, "Lie with me." But he refused and said to his master's wife, "Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. Of me, my master, um, uh, no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge." He is not greater um, in this, uh, sorry, he is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept anything uh, back, anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And he spoke to, and she spoke to Joseph day after day. He would not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. So here we begin to get into the awkwardness of this passage right? So, verse 6, Joseph was a handsome, handsome in form and appearance. Some commentators comment that this is the only place in the Old Testament where a, man, a man's physical appearance is commented on. I didn't do the homework to check on that, but it kind of rings true in the sense of like, really the Bible gives very little commentary on people's physical appearance or attributes or anything like that, um, almost entirely, which is interesting to consider. Um, in terms of how we, we value and, and rank kind of physical appearance. but And I'm not going to give an example of like, well, Joseph was like fill in the blank, because I'm like, that's just going to be different for anybody, right? But it, basically the commentary is Joseph looked good. He was a good-looking guy, um, physically fit, whatever it was. But the important part to kind of begin to notice is that the way Potiphar's wife, and it's fascinating... When the Bible gives names for, other pe- for some people and then refuses to give names for some people, pay attention to how that plays into kind of what's going on. In the story. So, for example, in the whole story of Egypt, Pharaoh is never named, right? Because it's emphasizing that people who get named are important to God in general terms. Potiphar's wife reduces Joseph down to he looks good. This is all I care about. He serves the purposes of what I want. She is dehumanizing Joseph down to only what he looks like. So you know, Notice that it says that there in verse 8. I'm sorry, verse 7. After a time, his master's wife, quote, cast her eyes on Joseph. Right? This is beginning to, like, he is reduced down to the, only what matters to the eyes, visually, right? And there's some kind of homages to back in Genesis 3 where, where Eve saw that the fruit was good for, she saw that the fruit was good for eating, reducing all of creation down to just the bare senses, what I get from what I want, how I get it now, that type of thinking. Here we have her doing that to Joseph. And when she says, lie with me, I think... We just kind of generally say that's a euphemism for other things, but it is a violent, in the text, it is a violent term. It's not, hey, let's do this stuff that we think will be really great. It is a violent, degrading, grabbing word that has no affection, no love. It is a bare act, and that's all it is. So she is very forceful in what she's saying. She's very forceful in what she's saying. She's very degrading in how she views Joseph. And you'll notice there in verse 10, and she spoke, right, she is saying, she spoke like this to Joseph day after day, right? From other places we know that he was in Potiphar's house for 11 years. She spoke like this to Joseph for 11 years. The first, ver- the first instance of this was in and of itself what we call today sexual harassment in the workplace. Like, have you ever done through any sort of like HR work and you're kind of, you have to sit through those classes or those, those video things or whatever for your work environment and they talk about this is what sexual harassment is? This fits the bill of that. I'm, I mean, can you just kind of begin to think, put yourself in Joseph's position and have somebody who says this to you, not just once, once is bad enough in your work environment. But it happens day after day day after day joseph lives under showing up to work you have to appreciate well it's a little different than showing up to work when you're a slave but you just work with me here right showing up to his work environment day after day somebody catcalling calling him whatever it is right degrading comments Demeaning to him as a person, just because he's being reduced down to the bare physical realities, rather than valued for the person that he is, and he has to live under this environment day after day. And then, just notice, verse eight to ten. He is. What is he? What is he doing here? In a situation where people experience this type of kind of aggressive tactics towards them, Joseph is living out of the integrity that we commented on earlier. And resisting, right, resisting the abuse, the harassment, whatever you want to call it, right, he, re- he does five things in terms of his resistance, right, he says, your husband would feel betrayed, he would, have pre- he would have breached, he would have broken his own duty for his job, like, look, this is against my job, I've been entrusted, not with you, with all the business workings, not his personal life, right, this is immoral, what you're asking me to do, what you're pursuing me for, right? It's a sin against God. And you could even say that he's implying and saying that it's not only a sin against my God, it's a sin against your God too, which we're going to get into in a little bit. It's a sin against your Egyptian pantheon, what you're asking me to do. And frankly, it, at the end of the day, it is a sin against my God, which is important to me. And the fifth thing that he, sa- he does is en- eventually is verse 10 he would not listen to her or lie beside her or be with her, right? He eventually, let's see, where did, verse 10, it said this, right. He would not listen to her or lie beside her or be with her. Sorry, I was collecting my thoughts there. Notice that he says that he would not be with her at all. So now his workplace environment, he's having to figure out like, okay, she's in the east corner of the mansion. I'm going to be in the west corner. Right. He's having to live his life now, adjusting so that he's avoiding her sort of pursuit of him, her harassment of him. He's having to figure out how to basically readjust his life and his work because of her conduct towards him, regularly having to avoid her. This is a common practice. This is, unfortunately, a part of people who are being assaulted or harassed. It's common, right? Beginning to kind of feel like this could have happened on this week's news in the union leader about some company or whatever context in our city. Begins to feel very familiar. And I just kind of want to begin to kind of prod at this a little bit and just say, imagine what Joseph's experience was. Day after day, reasoning with her over and over. We've had this conversation for the last year. We've had this conversation for the last three years. We've had this conversation. I continue to have to press these points. No No, no, continually pushing on him. The type of anxiety that he would have had to live with. The type of experience of pressure. The type of dynamics that would have just been physiologically. I mean, I don't know if you ever get like obsessive thoughts about something or you're just kind of like, I'm so done talking about this. Imagine if that's something that's degrading and demoralizing and humiliating. Over and over, just the type of like mental strain that Joseph's living under begin to see that this is not just any sort of like normal kind of like hey let's have a side side chick sort of thing. This is like harass is beginning to really fill out the experience of what people call harassment or abuse. Now let's get into the kind of the dark part of the passage. So we've looked at the dehumanizing effect of sin, of injustice because it's not right the way Jesus is being treated. Now we're gonna look at the deceitful work of injustice. Verse 11, and I wanna, here's what I wanna do. I wanna read through this, and then I wanna ask you guys to help me kind of begin to mark out, what what's, is she doing here? So pay attention as we're reading through this first time. What does she do, like what is the pattern of activity, her behavior towards him? Just remember how we started doing more, kind of like give and take. So I know we're New Englanders, it's a cold morning. I'm going to ask you to work with me here, okay? You guys grab? All right. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by the garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called the men of the house and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard it, I lifted up my voice and cried out. He left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. And when she, Then she laid up his garment by her until her master, his master came home. And she told him the story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us, Came in, to me, came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of this house. Right? Caught him by his garment, that phrase, is not like somebody grabbing at your coat corner. This is a, I mean, you have to consider Joseph is commented on as being a good-looking guy. So probably a physically strong person some sort of physical strength, she grabs him. It's a violent phrase. She grabs him in such a way where he has to wiggle, like, wiggle out of his coat effectively to get away from her. So this is not some sort of misunderstanding that happens, right? She grabs in a way where he has to get out of her grip to leave, and basically has to leave his cloak behind and gets out of dodge. He runs out of the house. So, I want you to ask I want you to break this down with me. This bit of like a so I'm going to ask you to kind of help me understand what's going on here. She caught him by his garment verse 12 and says lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house. Verse 13. What do you think she's experiencing as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house? She called to the other servants in the house. What do, you, what do you think she's realizing in this moment? Yes. You can just say. You don't have to like wait for me to call on you sort of thing. Yeah. Rejected? Rejected? Yeah. So kind of like, I'm going to come after him now. Al, it's like, uh, she has a fear of discovery, like anybody else on this fear of discovery? She feels, a bit like like, she feels she has to do, that's a great, I, I, I hadn't thought of that. That's great. So she's like, Oh, now I'm going to show him fear, discovery, feeling trapped effectively, she's got an alt, she's, I, at least my reading of it is, like, I've crossed a line, i got to do something now. Like, I'm not, I'm not able to just kind of walk this back or kind of like, he said, she said sort of thing. I now have material evidence, you might say, something's gone on. Also, did you notice Joseph ran out of the house? This isn't kind of like, oh, somebody else can reinterpret this. She might be thinking, he's gone to tell somebody. I've got to, I've got to work quick to figure out what do we say about this. Kind of like to Al's, she's fear of discovery. She, this is going to get Al. and presumably. He's run out of the house, right? He hasn't just run to some other corner of the house. This is a moment, a decisive moment. So, all right. Picking up verse 14. She called the men in the house and said to them, see... He brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came to lie with me, he came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. As soon as he heard it, heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. What do you guys kind of see as, what do you think that she's saying here? What's going on? Anything, any kind of thing that strikes you from the passage? Sorry, just to repeat everybody here. So be, Joseph might be thinking, I've been here for like 11 years. I kind of know how this might go down. I've given her evidence that she has to work with. Yeah. Like he could have turned back and grabbed his. Oh, running is a sense of guilt to it. yeah. 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 So she starts kind of re, making comments about him. Mary, she's bringing other people in on her side. Yeah. Anybody else? So I have to reinterpret face scratches as not raising hands. <laughs> yeah. Why he ran, or what do you? What any thoughts about what she's saying here about him right now? out of there right so that's sorry he anybody time any time anybody says win win situation I immediately think of that scene from the office where it's like Michael trying to do like a negotiation what's the sorry not to divert (laughs) so you're recognizing you're picking up on the power dynamic she wins either way Whether she gets what she wanted from him or she tells a story about him, she wins, and Joseph's in a lose-lose situation, right? He loses no matter what. I think that's a part of what's going on in this passage. To pick up what Al said earlier, you know, she starts making comments about him. Like, did you notice how suddenly now he's a Hebrew? It's like she's wanted him for a long time, and now suddenly, I mean, this is a racial slur or racializing of him, right? You start talking about kind of, we could use that as kind of like a jumping off point for like Black Lives Matter and racial stuff going on today and those sorts of conversations. But now it suddenly becomes really important that Joseph's a Hebrew and that he's been racialized or racially profiled. So who knows? I mean, you begin to kind of fill in some like, this feels familiar today because Hebrews, those guys can't control themselves. You know that. They get around beautiful women, and man, they just—they're monsters. That sort of—that's the insinuation here. You begin to feel like this is really like it's that this is really beginning to get gross. Like when you kind of begin to unpack the passage of like that. Now, once she's not gotten what she wanted, boom, she starts attacking him. She starts going after him. And did you? I, nobody commented. I just want to pull this out. Verse 14, and she called the men of the house. And you think I just think it's interesting to kind of pick up on the, the win-win, lose-lose dynamic. These are not friends in the house. These are other slaves that she has control over that are under her authority. And you notice that the story that she tells almost kind of, if you read it with a certain inflection, verse 15, 14, you begin to kind of fill in some inflection with the words, see, you're going to pay attention to me right now. He, my master, or your master, my husband, who does she, st-? she starts blaming her, her husband right off the bat. See, he brought this Hebrew, see, you can kind of almost get the insinuation of like, you better not cross me, you better agree with me. See, this type of, see, he, he left his cloak beside me. I just wanna say, if, if we just kind of just factor in general strength factors, Joseph being strong, her grabbing onto this, potentially that cloak does not look like somebody kind of took it off gently. It looks like it's been ruffled, maybe ripped. So they're looking at this ripped evidence of like, see, he took his cloak off to me and laid it next to me on the bed. It very clearly probably does not look like that. And so here she is spinning a story I cried out with a loud voice, didn't you hear me kind of insinuation? Because the story doesn't say she cries out with a loud voice, but you're my slaves and you know, didn't I cry out with a loud voice? See, now things, when you kind of start to kind of pick it apart a little bit, this feels really gross. Like this is, this is not just kind of like, there's a misunderstanding, I'm sorry, I said that sort of stuff. This is very clearly, there is a power dynamic being utilized against Joseph, and she goes into attack mode right out of the gate. Even, you don't know what Joseph's experience of this is, but you begin to see like, man, this is not good. This is, uh, right, you see, sorry, just one last comment. Verse 15, and as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice, he left his garment beside me and fled to get out of, and got out of the house, right? Now she's becoming the victor in this whole story, right? She, I, I stood up for myself against him, and he, he was going to take advantage of me, and he ran out of the house, and look how good I am with... I stood up for myself. And verse 16, she laid the garment out for his master to come home, and she told him the story, saying... The Hebrew servant whom you brought among us came in to laugh at me, but as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled out of this house." All right? see now she's both the victim and the one to be celebrated for standing up for herself. This is, if you're familiar with um, abuse categories, this is what uh, modern interpreter, or as sociologists, doctors, those smart people type stuff, they call this Darvo. There's a, a, a regular, pa- a recognized pattern in abuse dynamics. Deny, attack, reverse the victim and offender. Right? Deny what happened, attack their character. He's the type of person that would do that. He's a Hebrew. You know how those guys are. And you reverse the victim and offender. I can't believe that you would say that about me. Can't you see what I'm trying to do here? That's the way, that's a recognized pattern in all types of abuse situations that happens. And the attack can look like minimizing what's happened. The attack can look like denying what's happened, like what happens here. Then the, the attack can look like basically reversing the, the situation so that the person who's disclosing what's, what's occurred is now, they're, they're the meanie they're the bad person in the story. Okay. I want to I kind of drop into, there's a lot more that I could say here, but I think this is just helping us see that this story maps onto our lives and what we experience or what some of us have experienced and what we witness around us. That is just confusing because you can imagine both of these stories, like imagine you're one of, you're one of the household servants, so to speak. You've worked with Joseph for maybe as much as 11 years. You know what Joseph's like. And then you've got the master of the house who has something to lose, so to speak. They're telling this other story. Maybe if you're a woman, you're one of the female servants of the house. You're like, I've never once felt uncomfortable around Joseph. And you're telling me that he did this? This is the confusing fog of deceitfulness around abuse and power and all that stuff you just begin to be like, I feel like I'm losing my mind. None of this makes any sense because what you're saying, if what you're saying is true, and if what you're saying is true, we live in two different worlds. (laughs) Like, none of these, both of these can't be true at the same time. So why do we cover this? You know, we're not preaching every chapter. So why are we preaching this chapter in Genesis? Frankly, some of it's because I didn't want to preach the other passages. They get a little bit more graphic than this, and I wanted to keep this PG, or relatively We cover this because we want to create categories. We want to acknowledge categories that map onto not only our life, but are true from the Bible to show that the Bible actually speaks to our real lives. Not some sort of fairy tale of what we want our life with Jesus to be, but the reality of the lives around us. So this, because abuse and those types of things are incredibly private, this may or may not speak to your life. This may be something you've never experienced. I thank God for that. This may be something that your family or friends have experienced. It's helpful to be aware of what they've gone through just in terms of that we have a story in the Bible to begin to kind of refer to and understanding. Maybe this is, unfortunately, your personal experience. And I think it's important for you to know, God chose to put ink to pen, to then, parchment or paper, to give space to describing something. That he cares about that you've experienced you'll notice I, I just thought it was interesting as i was preparing for this morning in the chap- genesis chapter one i commented this and we preached through this there is a throwaway phrase about god creating the stars you're like bro that's a hundred billion trillion stars in the universe and throwaway comment oh and god made the stars but look at all the space that god is giving in a time where it was crazy expensive to write things down, to map onto your life, to our lives, and what we experience. It just, even just in terms of the space given to it, it shows God's care for these things. It is important to cover these things because sin is inherently confusing. Right? If you try to rationalize sin in our lives, whether it's sin that we've committed or sin has been committed against us or sin that we observe, at the end of the day, it doesn't make sense. Part of that's because God is truth and truth never lies. Truth doesn't sin. Sin loves to to to, to twist and always pervert t- truth and, uh, and goodness. And so sin at the end of the day does not make sense. And so even just beginning to give categories for how we comprehend and understand that we can never rationalize the sin that we see, I think it's important. I will say Oh, we'll get into this in a second. If you have questions, please ask. Okay. Are we tracking? Are we... Okay. We're going to close up the passage here. We're going to look at the power of living with integrity, verse 9, 19 to 23. Okay. So all of this gross stuff has gone on in this passage. This deceitful reality, this dehumanizing reality, And now here we pick up verse 19 in the back end of this passage. As soon as his master, that's Joseph's master, that's Potiphar, heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor on the side of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners that were in prison. Whenever, uh, whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Okay, verse 19. As soon as the master heard of uh, what his wife had spoke to him, his anger was kindled. The important thing to hear from that, from that verse, and again, I'm not trying to pull like a, if you really knew the original languages sort of thing, but the original, in the Hebrew and in the Greek versions of this, it's not clear who Potiphar is angry with. The way grammar is constructed, the, the way we read it in English, we're kind of like, oh, well, he, she must, be, he must be angry at Joseph because that's the way English grammar works. In Hebrew and Greek grammar, it would have, there would be an inflection on the words to give clarity for who Potiphar is angry with, and it's not clear. Second point about that. In Egyptian law, um, the charge of rape would have been met with capital punishment, period. Untolerated in Egyptian society. So my reading of this is that Potiphar hears this story and his anger probably is directed at his wife, not Joseph. Probably a detector, here I am, you've done this again. Here, oh, I can't believe I have to deal with this. And not only this, again, but now I'm losing out on my best business manager that I've ever worked with ever, period. I've got to do, she's, He's been put into an impossible situation where he's got to do something. And so ra- rather than following through on the... the, the verdict that should be added to her statement, he basically reassigns Joseph to being the, the prison manager. <laughs> Not even the prison, like in prison, like he's chained to a rock sort of thing, but like he's now like the guy who runs the prison. So to me that says that Potiphar doesn't buy his wife's story. You can disagree with me, that's fine. But I think the important part of this passage here comes in verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. I think what's critical for us to recognize here is that in the midst of this entire crazy story, we never get a window into Joseph's experience. There's no comment on Joseph's internal life. But there is commentary on Joseph's experience of God's orientation towards him god has been faithful to him joseph has experienced god's faithfulness towards him joseph frankly has stood up through this whole thing and walked through it only because god was with him joseph experienced incredible i mean i'm not sure if you've experienced this type of false allegation against you or people around you but joseph experienced this false allegation and walked through it trusting that god was still with him imagine joseph's he's been Basically beaten up by his brothers, sold by his brothers into slavery, bought as a slave, put into this house to work something that he never wanted to do, and now after being good at that job, been alleged of these things, what more can he take and still trust God? And yet God is continually with him and showing him steadfast love. I think the thing that, there's a few thoughts I have on this. I'm just trying to be careful. Wow. I am sorry. forty. Okay, are you guys cool? Can I make a few more comments? You can shut me down if you want. Okay. Mike, can I keep going for a few more minutes? <laughs> Here's a couple things I want to say. Nobody is so damaged by the abuse that they experience, whether that's systematic abuse or whether that's actual abuse, that God is not with them and wants to use them. That is a part, this is unfortunately a part of our lives. None of us invite this into our lives it comes as an uninvited guest and yet in that we begin and continue to experience the depths the character the quality of God's steadfast love to us strengthening us through the pain the legitimate pain of injustice in our lives okay let me pa- i want to i want to jump to the other side of the bible for one last comment and then we'll we'll close up in 2 Timothy 4:19 this is the last, 4, 9 through 18, sorry. This is the last letter of the Apostle Paul. This is the last paragraph of the last letter of the Apostle Paul. And then, second to last paragraph, or last, that where he is about to go and be murdered, killed, whatever. This is the last letter of the Apostle Paul that we have in the New Testament. And here's how he ends this. So, do your best to come and see me, for Demas in love with this present world, the pertinent verses are up here, I'm just going to read around it, has uh, deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Luke alone is with me, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with, with Carpus at Troas, also the books and all the parchment. Here Paul is still wanting to write and read at the end of his life. But here's the important part. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but I, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles hear it. So I was persecuted, so I was, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm not sure what Paul, the uh, Alexander did to Paul. But it was bad enough where Paul gave him a name, put his name down in Scripture wrote and said, warned other people, do not trust this guy. He has done me great harm. And this is written by a guy who'd endured a few shipwrecks, been lashed a few times, so who knows? But, bro, if, it's kind of like if he's survived, you know, if he's been a Navy SEAL, so to speak, and he's saying this guy did me great harm, it must have been really bad. Paul spoke what had happened to him. He was clear here's how I experienced this pain, injustice, and abuse. He communicated it to others and warned them about him. And then you'll notice he entrusts the results to God. He says, God, I'm going to trust you with this injustice to deal with it. When we experience injustice, God is with us in the midst of that pain, whatever it is, so that through that, we can be clear report disclose we must do those things but the heart posture that i think we get in joseph is god is not far off when we experience injustice he is very near showing us his love and patience and goodness even when we don't experience it from the people around us we experience god's presence sustaining us through the pain of injustice and in that we can lean on God to care for us. Let's pray. God, as we've talked about this passage and tried to do as much as we can to get into this, what you're doing for us through it, I pray that we would walk away leaning on you because of how good you are, even when the world around us is not. So it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire.